Today I want to begin a series of sermons on the parables of Jesus. Parables being the the short stories and the life illustrations that Jesus used to help his followers understand his messages. And I want to begin with two well-known parables which occur, very short sort of illustrations, which occur in all three Gospels and are considered to have been the first parables chronologically in Jesus' ministry. So let's look now at the ninth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, just one of the three places these uh, these parables appear in Scripture, beginning with the 14th verse. Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. At this point in the gospel accounts, Jesus has really started to get under the skins of the Pharisees, so to speak. First, wineskins, skins of the Pharisees. Boy, you're a tough crowd today. I don't know. First, Jesus had offended the Pharisees by saying that he could forgive sins, which they considered blasphemous. Then he had called Levi, an outcast tax collector, to be his disciple, one of those closest to him. And then he went home with Levi and with Levi's friends and ends up eating a meal with a gang of tax collectors and known sinners. The Pharisees were very upset with him. And now we discover that when the Pharisees and even the disciples of John, those who had been followers of John the Baptist before Jesus comes along, they have been fasting. It's possible that John's followers were fasting because he had been put in prison. But Jesus and his followers during this period of time, they go right on, eating and drinking like there was no tomorrow. It's worth noting that this was not a time of required religious fasting according to the Jewish faith. If it had have been, Jesus, who was very meticulous in following the Jewish regulations, would have been fasting. Now granted, he, he upended them and he reinterpreted them, but he still attended uh, temple when necessary, he went to the festivals, etc., But the Mosaic law, in fact, actually required only one time of fasting each year, and that was the Day of Atonement. uh, Though during the Babylonian exile, the Jews had sometimes developed other feasts, and they had become traditional, uh, or fasts, excuse me, and they had become traditional. It seems much more likely coincidental that John's disciples were fasting at the same time that the Pharisees were fasting as part of their showy righteousness. In order to prove just how good they were, the Pharisees made a big deal of the fact that they fasted every Monday and Thursday, twice a week. And then they wanted to make sure everybody knew about it because they considered that just all that more credit to them as being spiritual. But it may be that the reference to Jesus and his followers not fasting is a reference to the meal Jesus had just had with his disciples and those tax collectors and sinners. And those tax collectors and sinners would not have cared whether it was a time of fasting or not. So according to the parallel account in Mark, in addition to John's disciples, the Pharisees also approached Jesus. First to question the company he was keeping, 
and then to ask why he and his followers were not more pious like the Pharisees were. In effect, they were saying that they wanted Jesus to explain why he was having such a good time with these unsavory people that he was hanging with. His conduct to both the Pharisees and apparently to John's followers seemed inappropriate. John the Baptist, by comparison, had been a very austere man. You will remember he lived in the wilderness. He, uh, the clothing and the food was stuff that he took from the natural environment. So he was even something of a recluse, a hermit. But Jesus accepted, unlike John the Baptist, Jesus accepted invitations to meals. He played with children. He apparently enjoyed social gatherings. Later on in Matthew... Jesus says this, uh, Matthew 11, two chapters later, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, you're never satisfied, people. It's clear the Pharisees were scandalized to see Jesus at this party with these terrible people. And apparently some of the pious disciples of John the Baptist were also perplexed by Jesus' actions. Jesus had already made it clear, however, that he came to convert sinners, not to compliment the self-righteous. And now he told them that he had come not to bring sadness and fasting and grief, but rather that he came to bring gladness. You see, because of the legalism that was imposed by the scribes and the Pharisees, the Jewish religion had become a very burdensome thing, a very difficult thing to the common Jewish people. The poor people especially were weighed down by rules and regulations that they found often impossible to obey. In Matthew 23, Jesus says they, meaning the Pharisees, tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves do not willingly lift a finger to help move them. But now, over against this legalism and this judgment, Jesus is telling them, life is not supposed to be like a funeral. God wants life to be like a wedding feast. Jesus says, I'm the bridegroom and these people are my wedding guests. Are not wedding guests supposed to have a good time? Now, to the Jews of that time, fasting was usually a sign of sorrow and of mourning. And often it was a time of contrition of sin. That's why it's part of the Day of Atonement. But a Jewish wedding was just the opposite. Jewish weddings were lavish affairs. They lasted seven days. They were full of feasting and dancing and singing. No wedding guest was permitted to fast or mourn or engage in hard labor during the wedding feast. It was a time exclusively for joy and for celebration. John the Baptist had already announced that Jesus was the bridegroom, and our Lord had performed his first miracle at a joyous marriage feast at Cana, the turning of the water into wine, over 900 gallons of wine, by the way. Now he was inviting people to come to the wedding in which he was the bridegroom and they were to be the bride. It was not a time for fasting, As long as he was there, it was a time for joy and celebration. C.S. Lewis, whose autobiography is entitled Surprised by Joy, which his friends thought was hilarious because after he wrote that book later on, he met Joy Davidman and ended up marrying her and truly was surprised by joy because he never thought he would marry. But this book, Surprised by Joy, is about much of Christian joy in life. And in that book, one of the most profound things he says, Lewis says, is that joy is the serious business of heaven. 
Isn't that good? Joy is the serious business of heaven. Jesus had come to earth to bring the kingdom of God and salvation, but not as a burdensome thing, as part of the experience of a kingdom of joy in our lives. So the wedding feast analogy is perfect. After all, becoming a Christian is like entering into a marriage relationship. Two people don't get married just because they know each other or even because they have strong feelings about each other. In order to be married, they must commit themselves to each other and make that commitment known. In most societies, the man and woman publicly affirm their commitment when they say, I do, in public. In the same way, salvation in Christ involves much more than just a person knowing about Christ or even having good feelings about Christ. Salvation comes when a sinner commits himself or herself to Jesus Christ and says, I do want to become a follower of Jesus. And then the believers enters into the joy of this spiritual relationship, bearing Jesus' name, enjoying his love and protection, and one day living with him in his glorious home in heaven. And when you are married to Christ, life becomes a wedding feast, a place of joy and celebration in spite of the trials and difficulties that still exist in our lives. In Christ we have joy because Lewis was right. Joy is the serious business of heaven, and it begins for us now. Our continued life in Christ here and now is in preparation for the complete joy we will experience in heaven with him. And so here in Matthew, as well as in Mark and Luke, all three of the places that have these parables, we're taught, I believe, three very important lessons about the ministry of Christ, the kingdom of God, and how it should affect us. As we've already said, Jesus was not interested in complimenting the self-righteous or the religious. He came to save sinners, which is why he spent so much time with sinners and had so little uh, patience for those hyper-religious, self-righteous ones. Secondly, after coming to save sinners, he came to bring joy and not sadness. Jesus wants us to have celebration rather than perpetual mourning and fasting. And the third lesson, I believe, is that he came to introduce the new, not just to patch up the old. The Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' time who spent, uh, who spent the effort to listen to him were clearly impressed by Jesus' teaching. We have a number of references to that. Perhaps they would have been happy to make some of his ideas part of their own religious tradition. They may have even been hoping for some kind of compromise that would retain the best of their Pharisaic Judaism and also the best of what Christ had to offer. They wanted to keep what they had, but they might benefit from some of the new teaching Jesus brought. But Jesus exposed this idea as being foolishness. He told them that it would be like sewing pieces of new unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. And then when you wash it, the patches, which were new fabric, would shrink tear away and ruin the whole garment. Or he said it would be like putting new unfermented wine in old brittle wineskins so that when the wine continued to ferment and gases formed and expanded, the old wineskins would burst and you would lose both the wine and the wineskins. Jesus was making it very clear that he did not come in order to merely unite his message with the Jewish law, to put icing on the old Jewish faith. He had come to earth instead to usher in something that was completely new. 
The rest of the New Testament is full of affirmations that Jesus was bringing a completely new thing. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. In Galatians, Paul further says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. And the writer of Hebrews says, By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. What is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Jesus had come to establish a new covenant in his blood, the very words that we use when we take communion twice a month. After Jesus, the law would be written on human hearts, not on stone, and the indwelling Holy Spirit would enable God's people to fulfill the righteousness demanded by the law. Many people, many professing Christians, seem to think that they can continue to live their old lives, just like the Jewish Pharisees did, and that they can just add a little Jesus into the mix, like an extra egg. Perhaps just an hour on Sunday will be enough, maybe an occasional saying of grace at Thanksgiving or Christmas meals. But Jesus' message is clearly that salvation is not a blending of the old and the new. It is not a new patch on an old garment or a a new patch on an old wineskin. The Christian faith, belief in Jesus, is not merely patching up one's old life, but keeping the majority of it. Remember, Paul said, the old has gone The new is here. Jesus came so that we could put on a whole new robe of righteousness. The Christian life is not a mixing of the old and new. Rather, it is a fulfillment of the old in something that is completely new. You see, there's two ways to destroy something. You can smash it, or you can permit it to change into something else and so fulfill itself. For example, you can take an acorn. You can smash an acorn with a a hammer... Or you can plant it and allow it to grow into an oak. In both instances, the acorn is destroyed. But in the second instance, the acorn is destroyed by having fulfilled its purpose. When Jesus came, he destroyed the requirement for the law by fulfilling the requirements of the law. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, the demands, and the expectations of the law of Moses. The law was fulfilled at Calvary when the perfect sacrifice was offered for the sins of the world so that no future sacrifices would ever have to be made. In Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment of everything God promised to his people through the entire Old Testament. In addition, by using these illustrations, as he did of the old and new garments, the old uh, wine and new, uh, new wine and old wineskins, Jesus made it clear that he was offering the one true faith and not some syncretistic world religion. I teach world religions, and I believe as Christians, you've heard me say many times probably, I believe we have a responsibility to know what other people believe so that we can be affirmed in what we believe, how it is different, and why we believe it is uniquely true. But some well-meaning but spiritually blind religious leaders sometimes suggest that we take the best from each of the world religions, that we blend it in with the best of the Christian faith and therefore manufacture a synthetic faith that would be acceptable to everybody. But that doesn't work. Christianity is not like other religions. It does not blend. The Christian faith is exclusive in its character. It will not accept any other faith as its equal or its superior or something to be blended with the Christian faith. 
Now, that sounds harsh in our pluralistic world when there's so many people with so many different beliefs. And we as Christians have to be very careful that we never come across as smug or self-righteous about our faith. At the same time, we can never forget that a basic principle of our Christian faith is the belief that Jesus Christ, as the divine Son of God who saves us from our sins, is, among all the other religions and philosophies available in the world, uniquely true. In Acts 4, in Peter's testimony before the Sanhedrin, he said, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. As sympathetic as we can and should be to people who have other beliefs, as much as we need to know about what different people in the world believe, we are called to stand firm in our belief that Christianity is quite simply more true than any other religion or philosophy, and to do that with compassion. But that doesn't mean just because we believe that Christianity is more true that we somehow ought to lord it over others who don't yet know Jesus as though we're part of an exclusive club which others are not yet allowed to be into, uh, to enter into. Rather, we need to desire with all our hearts that others too would come to know Jesus, to experience his mercy and grace. And we should do everything in our power to share the grace of God with them by introducing them to his son, Jesus. I love the old adage. It's almost cliche, but all cliche means is that it's been popular because it's true, that evangelism, sharing our faith, is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Not because I'm better, not because I have been in any way uh, qualified or that I deserve something more. I am one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. But I do need to recognize in the Christian faith that Jesus is the only living bread. And so in conclusion, the main messages that Matthew gives us in this passage from his gospel and the, sem- the parallel passages in uh, Mark and Luke as well, first, Jesus came to save sinners, not to complement the self-righteous religious people. That's why the church should not be a resort for fat and happy believers, but rather it should be a hospital for people needing salvation and healing. This is one of the reasons that we as a church do all we can to reach out to people, not only with spiritual needs, but to fit with physical needs, to show care for them. We are to be a hospital because Jesus spent his time with the sinners and the broken, not with the religious people. Secondly, Jesus came to bring us joy, not judgment. He wants us to enjoy our lives, to enjoy our faith, to enjoy each other in him. Joy is and should be the unique domain of Christians. A dour and melancholy Christian is a contradiction of terms. doesn't mean you can't be sad sometimes. But if you go through life saying, oh, woe is me, you need to look at your faith. Jesus has given us life abundantly, and he wants us to enjoy it. And third, our joy is rooted in the fact that in his incarnation, Jesus brought a new thing. He did not simply patch up the old law, nor does he simply patch up our old lives and let us keep the rest of it. He most certainly did not come to bring us just one more religion among many that can be blended together. 
In Jesus, all things are new, salvation is unique, and we are a completely new creation. And we should celebrate that with great joy. There simply is no more fun or exciting life than a life that is committed to living in Christ. That's why you hear the sounds of joy in the morning before the service starts as we share together. That is what God desires for all of us. It's what Jesus wants for us to enjoy one another and him. But to do so, you can't just put your toe in the water. You'll never know what it's like to swim if you never jump in. And so to find joy in Jesus, you do have to throw yourselves completely into him. And there you find the joy of the Christian faith. Amen.